the night that he came home. That night, he tore a bloody rampage through the world of cinema, and suddenly, trick-or-treating was lethal again. His name was Michael Myers, and the night was Halloween. Welcome to Filmstrip and our Halloween retrospective series. Here to protect you from the clutches of Michael Myers or the Silver Shamrock Corporation are Brian. More fancy talk. And Jay. We are talking about evil on two legs. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the Halloween films. It is time to find out. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. And this is our review of Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, starring Donald Pleasance, Paul Rudd, Marianne Hagen, Mitchell Ryan, and George P. Wilbur. Directed by Joe Chappelle, released in 1995 on a budget of $5 million, grossed $15 million at the box office. So Now, famously, there are two versions of this film. There's the theatrical version, which we both saw, and essentially what we're reviewing here. And then there's something known in the bootleg circles as the producer's cut. And according to things I've read, this is actually going to get a proper release on Blu-ray eventually. Uh, it's been owned by the studio forever, and they just have never bothered with it. But uh, basically the same story. There's about five to ten minutes of differences, and I'll try to call them out as we go through. The ending is vastly different, but... For the most part, story basically the same here. And six years in between films, that lets you know that there was no faith left in the franchise. <laughs> and, I mean, really, I mean, it, Halloween 5 flopped huge, and horror movies really died at, at that point. I mean, nobody was into them like they had been. And nobody was doing slasher films. And this is a year before Scream came out. And the story of this one, though, Brian, is that at this point I had started following films in uh, on the Internet and all this kind of stuff and how they were produced. And, I mean, there were rumors about this. At one point, Quentin Tarantino was going to, like, do this one, and that never happened. And then, I don't know, there were all kinds of people attached to this before they ultimately came up with this. But my freshman year of college... I saw the trailer for this thing. I had really gotten out of watching movies almost all together by the time I got in college and had given up horror movies, all this stuff. But I saw the trailer for this and then waited till it went to our local dollar theater. After a film had been in theaters for a long time, it would go to the cheap theater. And for a dollar, you could go to watch it. And for two dollars, you could get a Coke and popcorn with it. And so being a broke <laughs> college student, my friend Al that lived across the hall from me in the dorms and I went to this. And he, he didn't really know anything about the movies. He just wanted to go. And I was like, okay, let's go. And so I went and watched this. And I remember walking out of the theater going, what did I just lose a dollar on? <laughs> Oh, it's yeah. so true. <laughs> yes, it is so true. <laughs> uh, very, very weird, um, different film altogether. Oh, man, it's it's just a – we talked about last time that they were going in some really strange directions, right? <laughs> well, they, they really went in one this time. Yeah, you said they went after us last one. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> this is where they went off the rails hardcore. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Let's, uh, Jay, why don't we get into the plot summary for this one so we can talk about how awesome it is. Okay, I will try. <laughs> you know, you and I have done some awesomely strange horror franchise films. <laughs> the Leprechaun films come to mind. I don't know of one that may crack us up more in the plot summary than this one, but let's give it a shot. So, <clears throat> Approximately six years after the events of part 
five, we, we learned that the mysterious stranger who broke Michael out of jail and kidnapped Jamie Lloyd in an effort to impregnate her is actually the leader of a cult of druids. That's part of the curse of Thor. So more on that in a second. Jamie has the baby but escapes with her newborn, and Michael catches up with her and kills her. And in the theatrical cut, he, he kills her on a farm, and in the producer's cut, she's wounded and then killed later. But anyway, the infant is found by Tommy Doyle, played by Paul Rudd, the young boy that was babysat by Laurie Strode that was obsessed with the Boogeyman in the first movie, that same character, who brings it back for safekeeping or something. <laughs> and he reveals that Michael is driven by the Curse of Thorn. It is a an old druid custom where a person is inflicted with the curse and has to kill their entire family in order to save the tribe. So the mysterious stranger man in black turns out to be Dr. Loomis's colleague, Dr. Wynn, part of that group of people who protect the individual so that they can complete their thorn task. And the baby is to be Michael's final sacrifice. So with the help of Kara Strode, Laurie's adopted family cousin, something like that, who's now living in the Myers house. Tommy keeps the infant from Michael who slaughters many of the thorn followers and several other townspeople on the way. Michael is finally subdued by Tommy, who injects him with large quantities of a poison and then beats him down with a pipe or in the producer's cut, puts some rune stones on the floor and stops him cold in his tracks with some magic or some nonsense. And the film ends with Kara and Tommy, her son and the baby driving to safety while Loomis walks back into the sanitarium. And in the producer's cut, he finds Wynn dressed up as Michael, who transfers the curse of Thorn to Loomis, who starts screaming, loses his mind as Michael walks off into the night and that is as good as i can summarize part six of the halloween franchise brian wow (laughs) (laughs) um where to begin (laughs) well let's let's begin where the movie begins and uh, and then when i say the movie i'm talking about the the movie proper opens up with a woman screaming in pain in labor in an underground facility somewhere. <laughs> and, you know, we don't really, uh, we, we learn, of course, very quickly, this is Jamie Lloyd giving birth to a child. But what we don't know is, well, okay, how did she grow up so fast? Why is she pregnant? What What's happening? And where who's are we? <laughs> well, we'll get to who's kid in a minute. But yeah, the whole <laughs> opening cult, and the baby sacrifice motif and the little voiceover. What? (laughs) Wow. You thought we really got strange last time with it. Now, now we are there, man. (laughs) We are in la la. We are, we're almost in space. I would dare say (laughs) that might be even easier to understand than what happens in the first 10 minutes of this movie. Yeah. It was very confusing. (laughs) The, the way they shot it was horrifying to watch. I mean, not in a good way. Like, <laughs> like I, what the hell? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what's going on, but I can't because the way they're shooting it makes you get all blurry and crappy and bleh, And you're like, well, what the hell's going on here? And so uh, very odd. And here's the part that really just blows my mind. So they they're keeping her in there right they take her baby away she has this baby they take the baby away from her and then miraculously the same nurse who took the baby away gives it back to her and helps her out right 
Yeah, uh, uh-huh. in the theatrical cut that seems incredibly absurd. I agree. Now, in the producer's cut, that scene where the baby gets taken away is a lot longer, and you see that nurse sort of reluctantly go through with that, which totally explains why okay. she would come back and try to help her break out. Well, that would have been helpful. Yes, <laughs> it's one of the cuts that, like, well, no, that should have stayed in. <laughs> you know, like that was that's one of those pieces that uh, that should have stayed in there, but it yeah. did. So she, you know, she, if you. You want to come with me if you want to save your baby. Now, I got a question here about this baby business, all right? Jamie was supposed to be nine, maybe ten years old of that last movie, okay? This is six years later. She's supposed to be 15 or 16. Correct. The actress, clearly not Danielle Harris this time, has got to be at least 27. (laughs) Probably. not look even movie teenager in this at all. I agree. Yeah, I didn't get that it that she was only like 15 in this movie. It didn't come off. That, I agree. I thought she was in her 20s or something. And I didn't have any clue that this was Jamie until later. And then I thought to myself, really? This yeah. is this is the same Jamie? Yeah, it's supposed okay. to be the same one. And the thing is, like, they, they Daniel Harris would have come back for this. But, you know, she didn't really like the story. She didn't like how her character got killed off like that because she thought well that kind of sucks you know i made it through all this other stuff and i'm gonna die but okay whatever so she said well at least pay me decent and they're like no and so she said okay fine and then they just recast her (laughs) i was like well Well, and what okay (laughs) so she's held in captivity for six years with michael myers and whatever this cult of thorn is why does she need to have a kid to fulfill this prophecy because if isn't it the fact if she dies, that's the end anyway? That's what I thought, too. I, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> let's keep her in captivity so she can have a kid so we can sacrifice it. <laughs> I don't understand that. I don't either. And it's not explained in any version. I don't know what the script writer was going for. As he says it, it's like they had him do 10 drafts of the script and they took every cheap idea in all of them and stuck them together. He has no idea. And then what? what yeah, what what I read, too, is that... They showed the the original producer's cut to like a group of like teenagers, and they all hated it, especially the ending. So this director got so paranoid, he went and just cut the shit out of the film. <laughs> he reshot a third of it. Yeah, and, and totally changed it on the strength or weakness of a screening. It's the first right. time that it happened. You know, Miramax dimensions involved now. It's big studio this time, so you're going to have it screened. And yes, they test screened it on an audience they thought would be the the test audience for this movie. And yeah, <laughs> you know, for an R rated movie, they test screened on teenagers. Well, but even so, that's still the target audience of this movie. And yeah, that's the feedback you got. So uh, yeah, not- I, I find it funny that Rob Zombie, who will later take over this series, famous. Said, I wouldn't have wanted someone to ask me, well, my opinion of how Jaws should have been re-edited when I was 17. I would have ruined the fucking movie, you know? Right? He's exactly right. Because there's not a lot here, but boy, the cuts they start making, it really, yeah, it makes well, it chops the story up so that it's unrecognized. I mean, it's, it makes no sense. Non sequitur. Like, things just sort of jump around and you have no idea how anybody uh-huh. got there. So Jamie gets out of the nurse course, gets killed by Michael, who starts to run after her. Now, that's a weird thing. He's never run in the whole series, and now he's going to start, you know, huffing after this chick. What the heck, huh? 
Yeah, why not? You know, and we have the car chase. She steals a truck. He steals another car. They go down this you know road or whatever. She winds up at a bus station somehow, listening to what has to be the most thin rip off of Howard Stern ever. <laughs> oh God, the the Barry. Yeah. Barry Sims. Yeah, I thought for years, I was like, God, they just ripped that off. I found out later, no, they wanted Stern to do it, and he was in line to do it. Then his semi-autobiography, Private Parts, got greenlit, and he went to work on that instead. So this could have been Howard Stern, which I'm going to say watching Howard Stern get killed by Michael Myers would have been very satisfying. (laughs) This guy is a joke. (laughs) Yeah, he's what an idiot. Uh, The whole thing. Every scene with him, it comes off as one of those yep, you're right, shock jocks like the Howard Stern type, but a really lame shock jock. Not even a <laughs> like, good one. Like, like one no, of the a lame... terrible one. Almost yeah. like a bubble of love sponge, right? <laughs> that kind of bad. Yeah, be, um, well, or like one of Howard's hanger owners that you know now do their own show. Yeah, yeah. It, it was really piss poorly done. And why this is playing <laughs> in a bus station with yeah. the loudspeakers, I'll never understand. <laughs> Yeah, no, I can see like people listening to this at home in their cars, whatever. No, they do not play talk radio of any kind in a public place. It's too controversial. <laughs> you got too- right, yeah. especially a shock jock show. Exactly. You're not going to hear Howard Stern blasted over the loudspeakers at a bus station or an airport or anywhere else. Even in the dead of night in a bad rainstorm. Like, Where there's nobody around. Yes, no one there, of course. So, it's yeah, it's all too convenient. And also convenient is who else is listening to the show? Tommy Doyle. And? Paul, Paul Rudd. Well, we'll get to the end in a second. Paul <laughs> Rudd. Okay. Paul Rudd. Now, we both know Paul Rudd from all of his comedy stuff. Uh, I know Paul Rudd from Friends. Well, Paul Rudd did Friends, but he's also part of the Judd Apatow group. Oh, yes. Yeah, he was. And and really, the movie that launched him was Clueless. Came out not long after this. It's amazing he ever worked again. The way he plays this, and I want to say this, I I know it's bad, okay? But I actually like Paul Rudd's bad performance. Because it is all, it's totally the same kind of performance that the guy that was the uh, guard at the beginning of part four that was leading the two people down the hallway, the guy that knows he's in a horror movie, and is totally just hamming it up. I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I had a good time with Paul Rudd. I thought the Tommy Doyle character was interesting. He basically camps himself out across from Michael Myers' home <laughs> for several years, apparently. He's obsessed with him. Has all of this crap plastered all over his walls, newspaper articles, crime scene photos. Yep. Where he got those, I'm not quite sure. Hey, it's the internet. He's got him. He's got him. that age now. So. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's got all this stuff, and he just keeps an eye on that house, waiting and waiting for Michael Myers to return. <laughs> Seems kind of odd. He's obsessed but, with the thorn thing. He's the exposition yeah. that tells us all of that. That's true. I mean, Where he figured that out, I'm not quite sure. But, hey, if all you got to do is research, I guess you could probably find out. <laughs> uh, I agree with you. I thought Paul Rudd did what he could with this one and he made it fun but it, it's classic paul rudd too i mean he has the same facial expressions and everything else that he has in all his other movies whether he's doing comedy or doing this serious over-the-top horror movie he looks yep. the same which is amazing exactly. that exactly. same sort of bland intensity is what i call it <laughs> he just sort of brings it to every role but i you know what here's the thing and this is part of what got cut
cut in the theatrical versus the producer's cut. The scenes where he is with Kara that we'll talk about in a minute, where he's explaining to her the Curse of Thorn are about three minutes longer in the producer's cut. And he goes through a lot more explaining of what that is, how it works, how he followed it, all the bit about the constellation and that every time it appears, Michael appears. Then he goes through year by year of every other movie of how that happened. And like it, it again, it's an explanation. I don't know that it makes it any better, but at least they try. You know, and right. all of that got cut because again, they just dumped all of that stuff in the uh, the paranoid director's reaction to the bad test group. That's <laughs> that's what it is. But not only is is he listening and calling into the Barry Sims show to talk shit about Michael Myers, Doctor Loomis is sitting somewhere in his home typing up notes and they're going like, isn't Loomis dead? And he's going, yeah, he's working on a manuscript. Yeah. And he's like, I'm not, not quite dead yet. <laughs> and I'm like, I thought that was pretty cheesy. I was like, poor Donald. Fletcher. Who are you telling that to Donald? <laughs> the audience. Cause I'm telling you, he died not long after production. Right. on this. When they went back to do all those reshoots, mm-hmm. he was gone, like gone from the earth, gone. And yeah. so that's why he is not really in this movie that much. He's much more of a presence in the producer's cut than he is in the theatrical. I think he's in the movie quite a bit, actually. I felt he was in the movie quite a bit doing things. I mean, he's he's very hobbled in this movie. Um, yeah. He's very old in this movie. Yes. And he plays kind of a key important piece in this movie as far as telling this backstory, right? I mean, it is, after all, his friend trying to get him to come back to work at this sanitarium and then eventually trying to turn him to join him and all this other crap. But... Um, he does still play quite a bit in this movie. And like you said, he, he did die towards the end. I mean, the funny thing is, is that he had stated before his death that it was the best script of all the Halloween movies <laughs> to date for this one. He was very excited for this movie. And yeah, luckily for him, he did not get to see how it turned out. Yeah, I, I will say this. What, could have been probably was a much more interesting script than what he actually what actually got turned in and stuff. You know, again, he he was one of those guys that became really loyal to the series and everybody that worked with him on it. it, Yeah. I mean, said that he loved it and embraced, you know, all of it and really had a good time with it. And the fact that he showed up for this one as sick as he was, because he was very sick at this point and playing it, it says a lot about the guy's dedication to it and trying to have some fun with it and stuff. And I mean, in, and then the producers cut the reason I asked you the question I asked you at the end of the last podcast, is what do you think happens to Loomis? He does this whole conversation with Wynn, who comes to visit him there about how he had a stroke six years ago, chasing Michael Myers. So like they actually oh, write man. it in the script and it's like, well, that, that explains everything about this dude's health. Like that, you know, it makes there total go, sense yeah. now. And so I don't know. I, I thought it was nice to include him, but I'll say this. I don't think there was anything left for Loomis to do. Well, he, he's there because he's still the he's still a vigilante out to get Michael Myers. I mean, that that's his role. And, you know, I think that if he hadn't have died after this film, he probably would have been in the next one as well. well and, and he said he would stop doing them at part 27. That was what he had said. Part so, 27. Yeah, he, he would make that <laughs> joke all the time. I mean, what is he going to do? Well, I'll do up to, you know, the... 30th one and then I'm done you know or whatever like he was always like I'm just gonna keep doing them as long as I make them because they pay me and sure you know I don't know he's an integral part you know you have he's the guy who's always been chasing after him he's the guy who knows the most about him well until Tommy here well and that's the thing I was gonna say I think because of Pleasance's health and then ultimately lack of availability in the shoot a 
lot of stuff got put on the Tommy character that normally would have been Loomis's job. I felt that way the first time I saw this movie, and I still feel that way about it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they were setting up another person to take over that role of the guy who's after Michael Myers and knows everything and how to stop him and everything else. Because, you know, Loomis never really figured out how to stop Michael Myers. Right. Tommy, on the other hand... Does. If you watch the producer's cut, kind of does. Yes, he does. And I know you've seen the ending of that because it's on YouTube and I sent it to you. We'll get to that when we yeah. get to it. Yeah, I do think they were setting that up. They were, again, you got people that are working off of a franchise. They're trying to say, is there something left to do here? And again, we've got to remind ourselves about horrordom. This is a year before Scream comes out and totally changes the game. You know, if that movie had never happened and didn't hit, who knows? They may have gone and followed this thing. It made money. I mean, it it tripled its yeah. budget. As much as it got hated by the critics, who cares? It made dough. That's all the studio cares about. So yeah, they might have followed any train down the path that would have been had it had it been the moment to follow. But as it turns out, you know, that, that didn't happen. This movie, though, the way it all sets up here, we've talked about Jamie's at the bus stop and she's calling into the radio show and she calls out for Dr. Loomis's help, who hears it because that's a great happenstance there. So she goes on the run again after Michael, being chased by Michael, gets chased to a farm as she's run off the road and then gets thrown on like. You know, Thresher farm equipment. Talk about a gruesome death. And then he turns it on. So he's basically grinding her to death. Yeah. She says, you know, some crap about you can't have the baby, Michael. And he's like, okay. And just turns it on. And it, oh, it's awful. Very awful. And it kind of sad because she was such a big character in the last three that she got kind of discarded so quickly. Well, yeah. I mean, Jamie's been it's for part four and five. And I mean, then they just they just dump her. You know, and that's the one thing Daniel Harris rubbed up against that she thought, you know, I, you have to make me the main character, but, you know, if you're going to kill me off like that. I, you know, she didn't like it. And so yeah, I don't blame her. And a lot of fans didn't either. I, I hated that, too. I kind of wanted to see where else they could go with her as an adult. So, you know, or yeah. as, as more of an adult, not, you know, not just a kid. But uh, alas, it had run its course and that was the end of it. And like I said, in the producer's cut, she's just sort of left there to die and then put in the hospital. And sometime later, she gets shot in the head by the man in black for like almost no reason. So it's, it might as well be dead now. She never really wakes up and says anything the rest of the time either. So it's, yeah, yeah it goes without much more explanation than that. But we got to talk about the new people living in the Myers house here. Uh, yes. <laughs> Of all the names, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the it's the brother of Laurie Strode's father, so it would have been her adopted uncle, and her, I guess her adopted cousin is who Kara is, who has apparently gone and lived it up on the road. Maybe she was with a band, who knows? <laughs> Had a kid, came back home, trying to get her life together. She's at the local community college, and her dad, like, they have the worst relationship of any father and daughter I've ever seen on screen. Well, it seems like the father has a very bad relationship with everyone in that family. Yes, what a jerk. He's kind of a dick, yeah. yeah. And there wasn't a person in this film I wanted to see die more than this guy. <laughs> uh, I mean, seriously. And the way he dies was awesome. Yes, yes, he gets <laughs> but, electrocuted and his head explodes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's you know for later. But yeah, the, this Danny kid, what the hell? Having the dreams kill for him, Danny, and then waking up and freaking out in the middle of the night and stuff, and then yeah, holds the knife on the the guy, and yeah, he's a crazy kid. Yes, and he is not in any way, shape, or form a blood relative (laughs) 
of Michael Myers, Laurie Strode, Jamie, none of them. So how the hell does he get this? I'm so glad you caught on to that because that is what they are to have us to believe is that the curse of Thorne is going to be passed on to another child and it's going to be Danny's turn. But they play it off. It's because he's related. It's going to get passed on. But no, he's not related to any of them because Laurie was adopted. So now you can read it one of two ways, either that way, which is the, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Or it can be any kid and it just happens to be in the same family. That's a little too convenient. Yeah, a little. (laughs) That's way convenient. This movie is so far up its own nose at this point, man. Like, it, it doesn't know what it's doing. So it's uh, it's very, very weird. But, yeah, I, this kid is creepy. I don't know who this kid is. I think I've seen him in some other stuff on TV and everything. But, uh, man, he, he actually plays it pretty creepy. And uh, He does. And, and they even tease that he has the Michael Myers killer in him by when when the father there smacks his daughter across the face and he comes up with the knife pointed right at him right mm-hmm. and you're kind of like, but yeah i was just looking at it going what the hell what are we doing with this kid because it doesn't really ever pay off <laughs> well it pays off as much as anything else does in this cut up movie. I mean, well, it's, true. it's it's ridiculous you know it's you get a good scene later on in the in the producer's cut i hate to keep going to that but it does explain it where they're preparing to sacrifice the baby and then the curse will be passed on to danny and his first kill is going to be his mother you know because all of his other family is dead at this point his uncle tim is dead at that point which is the, the brothers of her that gets killed by michael the mom and dad are dead the grant the would-be grandparents are dead so you know his first kill will be his mother and then i don't i don't know where it goes from there i, I don't understand totally about the curse of thorn but that's what they're trying to do there but of course none of that ever pays off and they, no they they can't do that so I, I don't know there's lots of stuff with kids here like how does tommy find the baby in the bus station and nobody noticed that it's there for 10 hours okay yeah let's talk about yeah you just had like a newborn and you've had three can you leave a kid that age alone for like more than an hour without yeah first off how the hell does he realize it's the bus station he hears something in the background and like keeps playing it back on a tape machine and here's like a bus announcement it's very okay you know the u.s marshals or uh fugitive thing i will say this he's listening back to the radio call right mm-hmm. she hangs up before any of that would have happened <laughs> so how that got on there not quite sure yeah that's besides the point so he goes to this bus stop and this place was deserted the night before when all this took place however it's fully crowded right now yeah. yet not one single person notices the blood trail leading down to the bathroom not one First of all, maintenance would have come in and cleaned shit up. And second of all, they would have probably called the cops if they saw a blood trail leading somewhere. <laughs> and third, there's a baby who's sitting in some kind of a compartment, like next a trash or something. It, no, it's, it's like yeah. where they keep the toilet paper next to the Okay. <laughs> this baby is not going to be quiet all night because let me tell you something. Babies <laughs> get hungry and they cry. This was horrible. Yeah, it's very uh, – you talk about things that are matters of convenience. Yes, and then on top of that, he finds this baby and just decides, eh, I'm going to keep it. Well, again, as he explains, and he explains this in both versions of the film, that, well, this is obviously supposed to be Michael's final sacrifice. And here's my question to you. Who's the father of that baby? I'm guessing it is Michael Myers. It is. In the producer's cut. Now, it's not a full-on, they don't show everything. But there's a scene that implies exactly what happens, is that his 
niece is raped into pregnancy by him. Eh. Yeah, now there's a reason that got cut, because nobody can do that. You cannot do that. There's no... No. No, exactly. <laughs> that, no. we No one, particularly American audiences, would accept such wacky I mean, stuff. Yeah. Like, there's no... And again, I don't even know that that mattered, because I don't understand what that... Like, what the, this is all proving. <laughs> it's like, why doesn't he just kill her? <laughs> Since that seems to be the end of the thorn anyway why does he have to have a kid to sacrifice i still am bumping up against that like it's it's crazy but yes he is supposed to be the father and they even call it out later on when they've got kara tied up waiting on the uh the whole sacrifice bit she's like you know the baby's yours right michael you know you can't do this and i was like oh Uh, this is really that's not right it's not it's not right at all it's very very weird yeah i don't like that glad that they cut that (laughs) (laughs) i think i would have puked However, so anyway, Paul, uh, Tommy decides to keep this baby, and then he he's got the baby, and or the, he yeah, runs into Loomis. He runs into Loomis at the hospital while he's trying to get some help for the baby. Yeah, and then leaves without ever getting that help. <laughs> well, yeah, leaves without the help because they he notices they're after him. Right? They they get called security on him, and right. so he knows he has to go. Loomis, you know, is talking about something with uh jamie and he's like yeah it was definitely her blah 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 and he tells him to meet him at this frat party or something junior college party that's going on (laughs) yeah can we talk about this for a second okay the town has banned halloween which is about (laughs) 10 years too late for having done it it's about time but now there's a group of kids kara's younger brother and, and and his girlfriend who are leading a rally to reinstate halloween so that we can all quote move on with our lives Coincidentally, that it happens on a night when Michael comes back and slaughters about a dozen people. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you remember back in part four, we talked about like the many ideas that they had for part four, and one was John Carpenter's, you know, let's go back to the town. What would it be like if this town ten years later had banned Halloween, and you know, what what if it all came back to haunt him anyway? Like of all the things to sort of hang on to and try to reuse yeah, that that good. plot point, I don't I don't know why that one made it. But, well, they had to go with something, and they probably had no ideas. This is true. And by the way, side point, the girlfriend here, did you recognize her? One of our favorite Buffy episodes from season three, The Wish, she's the girl with Larry and Oz and Giles in the Bizarro world. That's the I same, can't say I did remember. That's the same girl. I knew, I knew the face when we watched that show, and I couldn't figure it out then. And this time I was like, I am determined to figure out who this girl is. I went through her entire IMDb thing and saw that episode and said, aha, now I know who you are. She, yeah. she has about as memorable a moment here because all she ever really gets to do is to be annoying, wear the pants and the family girlfriend, and then she gets cut down from behind. So, you know, that's, yeah. that's all, you know, Beth is worth here at this point. Then we get reintroduced to Dr. Wynn, right. who has shown up at Loomis's house to – you know, ask him to come back to work at Smith's Grove. Um, and Loomis is kind of lukewarm to the idea because he's retired now and he really doesn't want to do medicine. Then he mentions the fact that he believes that the girl at the bus station was was Laura, uh, Jamie uh, Strode. And, you know, Wynn is like, oh, you need to let this go and try to tell him, you know, this, this has gone too far. Right? And we later learn why. He's kind of conflicted. So he's run into uh, Tommy at the at the hospital now and Tommy's telling him to meet him because he knows some information that you know he might want to know and and but he doesn't intend to go <laughs> Tommy's waiting 
and he all of a sudden decides later that he should probably go. Like, so he was not intending to, to he didn't care. Right. Like, it's, it's like he, he's going to go and try and find help at the, I don't know. I can't explain to you why he leaves Kara and Danny and the baby there watching her house as Michael comes around to slaughter what's left of her family. And then, you know, we didn't even talk about it. Like, you know, he he's there earlier in the day and her you know poor mother who's is hanging around and uh, she gets a call from Loomis who tells her, oh, you got to get out of there. This is you know, okay. a problem. And then, I want to talk about this. Yeah. And then Michael stalks her and kills her with an axe and then stuffs her in the laundry. I don't know. These people are related to the Strodes. Right. And somehow they've inherited this house. Well, it's, it, the, the whole thing right. is, and she actually says it in there, is you remember Lori's dad is trying to sell it, and they were never able to sell it, so finally just move into it. However, they're living in this house now for roughly six years. Right. And not a single person in Haddonfield has told them that this is Michael Myers' house. <laughs> not a single one of them knows that they're living in Michael Myers' house because they all in the city seem to know that that's Michael Myers' house. Except her. <laughs> Except for that group. Yeah. How is that possible? I don't Defies know. logic. It, because there is no logic to it. It's it's a dumb moment, and it's one of the dumbest lines they threw in this thing, is to have her go, how did you not tell us this? I'm like, lady, everybody knows this. Everybody you. in town. You've got people walking by making fun of them. And even the jerk dad seems to be like, not give a damn. <laughs> You know? well, he doesn't give a damn about anything. Yeah, exactly. That so guy's why would, a jerk. Yeah, why would he care about this, right? Well, I mean, yeah. The, the, so she's she's killed off, right? And, right. and we see that happen, and then uh, he comes back from his drinking work binge <laughs> that he was on, and to prove that he's such an asshole, he sits there and he goes, "Hello, anybody here? Oh, thanks for making me dinner." Yeah. Really, <laughs> dude. <laughs> No, Come again, on. the most pig person you can ever imagine. They put it all into this one guy. I've never seen a caricature so straight, <laughs> so straightforward. Like, you know, we've seen people in these movies that are sort of set up. We're supposed to root against them. The slutty girl in part four, the, I don't know, the put upon friends in part five, you know, maybe the dumb cops or something like that. But the jerk boyfriend of Tina's, right? But. Yeah. This is by far the most set up, cannot wait till he dies character they've ever had in this series. Oh, by far, by far. And he does get it in a pretty gruesome way, we have to admit. He finds the remains of his wife stuffed in the laundry machine, and then Michael, I guess, throws him and holds him up to the circuit breaker or something and electrocutes him till his head explodes. Yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, that one actually happened, but, you know, it looked cool. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the electricity would probably pass through him and on to uh, Michael Myers. Right. Because Michael Myers is the one who's standing on the ground. In the water. But that's besides the point. Right? Right? Uh, yeah, we don't we don't need to go into that. <laughs> but yeah, that was pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty pretty rough. You know, he gets it and that's what we want because he's despicable. So, you know, we go on and now we've got Tommy telling Kara all this stuff and what did you make of her, by the way? We haven't even talked about her. Kara Strode. I don't know. I, I don't hate her or anything, but I just feel like she's just sort of superfluous to all of this. She just seems to be damsel in distress at different times in the film. Yeah, she's an, uh, she's a strange character. Uh, she's she's obviously going to be our... 
Well, she's not even our main character in this film. <laughs> Who is the main character in this film? I would have to say Tommy. Yeah, I think you're right. This is the only one that makes sense to me. Which is a total change in dynamic because it's always been some sort of female lead. Like there's right. always been some female we're following in the yeah. Mike Myers parts of this series. And now it's not. No, and yeah, her character is so strange because, well, she's obviously got this son who we've learned from good old daddy is a bastard. Uh, he's got this mystical power going over him where he hears the quote-unquote man in black. <laughs> yes, it's back, folks. We haven't even talked about him yet. <laughs> but he hears the man in black telling him to kill for him. Um, and he's got some sort of weird connection to Michael Myers because of it. But... Her character, other than being a strode, doesn't seem to hold a lot of significance in this film. She's just kind of in the way and gets put in the way a lot. Honestly, I don't, yeah. I don't know what her intention was in terms of what, when they created that character, what it was supposed to be. Other than we just need another strode girl here, but it's, it's like there's too many people in this movie all of a sudden. Like this thing is, it's gotten this cast has gotten huge for some reason, and I don't, I don't know why. So cause we don't know who the hell any of these. Yeah, you could have had the kid without having her around because she just seems to get in the way. I yeah, well, why not? Why not just have him be the youngest of the kid there, and you know he's got the ultimate jerk dad. I would have bought that. That would have been. Fun. I would have bought that too. So okay. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't have answers. There aren't answers to any of that. But she does seem to be just kind of put upon here in the in the film. Yeah. And that's a I no don't... fault to Marianne Hagen. I don't think she's a bad actress. I just don't oh, think there's anything not. for her to do. I, she gets one good scene where she's being chased by Michael through her house and she like hits him with a fire poker and tries to run out the door real quick. That's sort of her best scene. Yeah, and, and honestly, I, I just don't think that we needed her character in this film at all, and it doesn't really do a whole lot or serve a purpose. So it's just kind of an extra character for Tommy to play off of, I guess. I don't know. He has to explain it to her so that we can have an excuse of him explaining it to us. As, I guess. As the audience. I suppose that's how it's supposed to be, but it certainly doesn't feel that way when you watch it. But very strange, no doubt. Very, very strange. What did you think of the scene with the old woman who is leading this boarding house that Tommy's living in, where she confronts uh, little Danny? Yeah, Mrs. Blankenship, right? Yes, the other exposition-heavy character where she talks about you know, hearing the voice and all of that stuff. Again, I don't know that that was necessary because um, she also tells something that I'm fairly certain is not accurate. She talks about being the babysitter of Michael Myers on the night that he killed his sister. I was like, uh, no, he was just kind of running around the house. Like, there's a whole scene where they're going, where's your brother? I don't know. He's somewhere around here. Let's go upstairs and have sex. <laughs> I'm like, well, there was no babysitter. If she was there, she's the worst one ever. <laughs> so she should have been killed, too. So I thought it was it was sort of obvious that, you know, clearly she's more than meets the eye. So when she turns out to be member of the Thorn cult, well, that's no surprise. You know, like, yeah, OK. And yeah. when she pulls a knife on Kara, who then jumps out the damn window. I didn't give Mrs. Blankenship much of a thought other than to say that she seemed to serve a purpose that two other characters already were serving. I don't know why she was there. Yeah, I don't either. Let's go ahead and say it now. The man in black is Dr. Wynn. You know, as we said in the plot summary, they reveal that early in, in Act 3. Like, they don't they don't waste any time getting around to that problem. They don't. And it, it may, why? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. The physician leader, whatever, of this group of doctors is secretly leading a group of druids who worship a 
curse that kills the family and he's got to get Loomis. I don't know. <laughs> I make my head hurt. Is he the guy who set up the car for Michael Myers to get into in, in Halloween 1 and drive off on? Is he the one who taught him how to drive? <laughs> you know what? That's the dude. The dude that Loomis is walking out with. That's the same guy. I don't know why they picked that rando character to lay all this out. I have no idea. That's The screenwriter came up with that and they just said, yeah, sure. And they got Mitchell Ryan, who, you know, I know from like Lethal Weapon and a lot of other stuff he's been in to come and read this hammy <laughs> stuff and play it <sighs> so over the top. The yeah. man in black that, you know, that mystery is solved. It's kind of like, you know, Brian, you, you host a wrestling podcast. You might remember back when the WCW was doing this whole black scorpion thing and then they took the mask off of it and it was just some rando Ric dude. Flair. And it was ultimately turned out to be Ric Flair. It was really, you know, not satisfying. Same thing here. Matter of fact, I, every time I watch this film and I see the man in black, I think of the black scorpion storyline. because <laughs> so, it, it, They were around the same time and it feels about as dumb. So. Yeah. I was sorely disappointed. Now, first they, they left us in this, that horrible fifth installment <laughs> with this man in black, taking out a whole police headquarters <laughs> and rescuing Michael and kidnapping Jamie. Yes. Which by the way, you do get, you do get a great flashback of in the producer's cut where they actually show that happening. Him throwing yeah, a knuckle okay. in a truck and, you know, grabbing Jamie. That That's actually useful. Well, that's good. And it would have been useful here. Yeah. However, I look at Dr. Wynn and I don't think that that guy is even remotely po- capable of doing anything like that. Yeah, he's at least like 60. And nothing against Mitchell Ryan, but uh, no. <laughs> it, it's, no, it's just that he doesn't seem to be the type of build or character who could even pull anything like that off. <laughs> right, and you, and you know the problem with that is because the guy who has played the man in black, the actual one walking around, uh-huh. was the same dude that played Michael Myers in Part 5, who's a big, oh, muscular go. stuntman. So that's why when you see this little guy walk on the screen, it's like, no, that that's clearly not him. So yeah. <laughs> that that can't work. I would say that was the one very unsatisfying uh, reveal. (laughs) It was an unsatisfying reveal, but he leans up with that hat and looks at Loomis, and Loomis, of course, loses his mind. And I have a question for you, though. After Kara sees all this go down and she jumps out the window, and then Tommy and Loomis had this old conversation on the lawn where they wake up going, where have they taken everybody? And Loomis is like, I think I know. And Tommy's like, I feel drugged. And I'm like, why do you feel anything at all? Why did they leave you two alive? Good question. I don't know why. They're like, yeah, we can kill these two. I mean, I guess because they wanted Loomis to take over or something. Well, they wanted Loomis to join them. So we know that part. But as far as Tommy goes, he obviously knows more than he should. Right. Thus, he should probably be killed. Right. Either that or he should be made to join them because in producer's cut, when they are breaking out of the sacrifice chamber with the baby and Kara and Danny and stuff, he's got a knife on Wynn and Wynn says, hey, you got skills. You should join us. And I'm like, well, that would have been a line useful five minutes ago when you left him alive. You know, like leave him on the yeah. floor out like, yeah, leave them. They, they can be useful later. That's all we got to have. Again, I was like, why are those two still alive? You got to kill these people. Like, this, is, this is why this thorn cult goes nowhere, Brian, because they they, yeah. They're poor planters. Absolutely. And they're all old. Yeah, they're all kind of old and physicians. And then, okay, I, I this is where the film really gets different, is in the climax at the Smith's Grove Sanitarium. So we all go back to that. 
tell me what you think you saw <laughs> when I was watching the first time the theatrical cut uh, you see um, basically Michael Myers is, t- is chasing after everybody here and Tommy just so happens to stick him with some drugs like three needles or something in the neck um, and then goes on a tirade and beats the holy hell out of Michael Myers until he's unconscious lying there and then just walks away like no big deal like this guy's got to be dead now because i drugged him to holy hell and beat the shit out of him and shall we say after michael walks into a surgery room and just kills a lot of people for no damn reason (laughs) okay yes he kills the entire cult of four what was that i don't know the studio told the director where's the baby the studio told the director, we need a more psychedelic, crazy ending. And that was what he came up with. So Michael, instead of trying to be helped, which I guess he wouldn't really want anyway, destroys everyone who's trying to help him complete his mission. Yeah. <laughs> and then gets beaten to a bloody pulp and we're supposed to believe he's dead at that point. And so they all walk out and Loomis tells him to get away. And they're like, you should come with. And he's like, no, I've got things to do. Walks in there. Michael Myers is no longer sitting there. The mask and the syringe. Yep. Unconscious. And a scream. And then you hear Loomis scream, which I'm assuming is they're killing Loomis' character because he's actually dead in real life. Right. That's what the ending is supposed to be at the theatrical, yes. The producer's cut ending is, I've already said it, you know, they have Kara and Danny and the baby set up for sacrifice. Tommy gets in there breaks them all loose. They're running out of there. Michael's giving chase and Loomis is still showing up and opening up the doors and shooting the automatic door closer and all that stuff. But Tommy, instead of doing the Royal beat down and instead of Michael just slaughtering people for no reason in a surgery ward, lays out like all these rune stones because he has this speech earlier in the movie about how you can cancel out the power of Thorn by doing this seance or some thing and he like cuts his palm Michael grabs him by the throat and then he, he says the the Sam Hain word and Michael drops him and later on you after they've escaped you see Wynn go up to Michael and go what have they done to you Michael and he once he shakes him out of it is when you see Michael kind of come to his hand grips or something. And then when Loomis goes back inside, he pulls the mask off of Michael thinking that's him laying on the ground and it's actually Wynn. And Wynn gives this great line followed by a terrible effect of this thing burning <laughs> Loomis's hand. It's your game now, Loomis. And Loomis loses his mind. So we're supposed to... It's either one of two things. Either Loomis is now infected with the Curse of Thorn or he's now the watcher of the Michael with the Curse of Thorn. Either way, Michael gets away and Loomis is left there screaming his head off in the sanitarium. It's a dark ending. It's stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's very... It's very... <laughs> uh, it's too much, I think is the word. Like, it's... Wow. We, we went from a guy who broke out of a mental institution and just stalked random girls to now this in four movies. <laughs> that is a heck of a jump. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, like you said, we don't know if Loomis is supposed to now go out and kill all his family. <laughs> yeah, which is, are they, any, oh. has he ever had one? Uh, who knows? <laughs> I mean, the fact that he can become Michael's watcher makes sense. It's not like he doesn't spend his entire life chasing him anyway. So. Yeah. Uh, something tells me that Michael doesn't really need a watcher. Yeah, but that's the other thing. Yeah, Maybe he's more of a make sure Michael does what he needs to do type person instead of more of a, uh, instead of a watcher. But 
You know? I don't know. It, it, it either way, Loomis is terrified by this uh, this turn of events. Yes, I thought both endings were incredibly horrible. <laughs> yeah, neither one of them is better than the other. It just one goes a more along the lines of what could have been explained versus the inexplicable ending that is that theatrical ending. You cannot explain to me how that goes down. That is a ridiculous. In, yeah, so all it's terrible. It. Yeah, very, very weird. So a strange film to leave us on for sure. Serious. And uh, Brian, I'm not in any suspense at all here now, but I, I've got to do it for uh, tradition's sake. Final recommendations, popcorn ratings for Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. Highly unrecommended <laughs> either version. I, I went back and watched some of the cut scenes from the producer's cut as well. Um, and... I don't know that they really add a whole lot to an already pretty weak and terrible story. <laughs> so if you want to see this movie, go find the producer's cut and watch that because it's more explanatory to what they're trying to tell in this convoluted story that is the curse of Michael Myers. But I don't recommend you even bothering with that because I'll say this. It doesn't matter. <laughs> they're throwing it all away anyway because this is terrible. This is a small burnt popcorn that you throw out right when you get it because it smells so bad. It's the popcorn that has been left in the microwave entirely too long because yes. they, they decided to make another run at it. That's a great uh. analogy. I agree. This is small popcorn. It's not any worse than part five. Parts five and six are both a complete tailspin in my, in my opinion. I will say this now though. The producer's cut of part six is infinitely more watchable than the than the regular one. They, that didn't make any sense. The, the regular version. You can try and you know, piece any of that together. At least the producer's cut tells a story. It's not a good one, but it's like I told you offline, you know, just because you explain something doesn't mean it's any good, but at least you tried. And I give yeah. them credit for trying to do something very different, but I cannot say watch this to anybody else. Now, as a fan of the series, this one is sort of a guilty pleasure that if it's on, I'll watch part of it here and there. You know, I don't just hate it. It doesn't make my skin pull. I don't get that, you know, up in this series that much. It's not that important. It's just a, you know, it's just you know, entertainment. And I kind of enjoy the goofiness of it sometimes and Paul Rudd, especially in it, but it's not any good. So no small popcorn <laughs> and it's, it's horrible. And I'm glad that they went somewhere else next time, but I'm going to tell you right now, Brad, there was nowhere else to go. <laughs> like they, they could not have continued this after this. There's nowhere else to go. And it, this series was done at this point until Jamie Lee Curtis stepped back in. And we'll talk about that next time on the next show. Yes. So Fun times to be had for sure. Folks, thanks for joining us on this latest edition of Filmstrip. You can find more episodes of this series and other films that we've reviewed at our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. Click on the Filmstrip logo there for the movies, and you'll find all the stuff there. You'll find links to our Facebook and Twitter pages. Additionally, you'll also find links to all of our other podcast ventures. Brian's Wrestling Podcast, Squared Circle Flashbacks. You'll find links to the Fabish Factor General Film Discussion Podcast, as well as the Art of Slaying, our Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective. Hook up with us on our social media. Let us know what you think of the film and of our reviews. We appreciate the support. Until next time, for Brian, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to our Halloween retrospective series. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes, like our Facebook page, and visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies, for more episodes. 
All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of its respective owners and is used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504, C2, Title 17.